0: Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in.
1: This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Please take care of yourself.
2: Welcome to Fruit Loops, episode 196. Bienvenidos, bitches. And thank you so much for listening. Yeah. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and those who are othered and the victims. Because contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, cisgender, able-bodied, white dudes. What? Mm -mm. Girl, these cases rarely get any public attention because the news is racist. Huh? Allegedly.
1: (laughs) And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy, a Black Latinx woman. And I'm Beth, and I just happen to be white. She's one of the good ones. (laughs) And we're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. So who are we talking about today, Beth? Well, today we're talking about Trent Christopher Benson. A South Korean-born American murderer, serial rapist, and suspected serial killer.
2: What a mouthful. But before we get into it, how you doing? I'm doing good. We're back from
1: a trip, mm-hmm. just kind of getting back into the groove of things. Yeah. Getting back into work, which has been wild.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? It's just Nobody does nuts. your work when
1: you're gone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of... A million emails to answer, uh-huh. and uh-huh. I wasn't even gone that long. Yeah. What the hell? Yeah.
2: Well, here we are. We're back. Hey, in case you were wondering if justice was still a thing... Trump was found uh, yeah. guilty. He was found <laughs> liable. And George Santos has been arrested and yep. I think charged. Yes. With lots of fraud. Like 13
1: charges, I think.
2: Yeah. So that has me feeling really good.
1: Very good. Yeah.
2: Happy to be back in the A. <laughs> hey, missing my friend Beth again, though. Oh,
1: I miss you too.
2: Yeah. So let's get into some listener letters. Well, hello, angels. Thank you. Hello. Oh, well, what's in the bag, Beth? Well, I don't have anything in my bag, but it looks like you got something in your bag. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to shout out to Angela on Instagram, who recommended this for all of our listeners. Henry Louis Gates and Finding Your Roots, a show we love, Yeah, is looking to film with families who were part of the Great Migration. Wow. Remember, it's the largest movement of African-Americans within the United States from 1910 to about 1970. Did your family leave the South with a dream for a better life? Then we're looking for a multi-generational Black families with amazing stories to share. So all you got to do is go to Henry Louis Gates Instagram page and the link in the bio to get more information to see if you and your family can sign up. I just thought that was really cool. That is cool and exciting. Didn't want to forget. Yeah. Yeah. Right on.
1: And I wanted to say, please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at (laughs) (laughs)
2: 602-935-6294.
1: And we may feature it on a future episode. Also, join us on Patreon, where we have literally hundreds of hours of bonus content, and we have a video club for 12-plus patrons where you can
2: interact with us in person. Yay! Also, to Angela on Instagram.
1: Yeah, thank you. And to all
2: of our current Patreons, thank you. Okay, now we're going to take a quick break and get into the story when we come back. so fast. (laughs) Remind us, Beth, who is our subject
1: today? Our subject today is Trent Christopher Benson, a serial predator who raped four women and strangled two of them to death. Benson committed his crimes against women at different times over a three-year period in Mesa and Phoenix, Arizona.
2: All right, now let's get into some stats. Whoa. (laughs) So I want to say rest in power to the victims and all those left in the wake of this piece of basura's heinous acts. The murder victims in the case are Alyssa Marie Beck and Karen Jane Campbell. Now, Benson, he's a convicted murderer and rapist, alleged necrophiliac and piece of basura. He was convicted of two murders and two of the sexual assault and attempted murder victims survived they were referred to in court records as Yolanda and Melissa. And then the crimes as we know of took place from 2004 to 2007. And good news, he's still in jail on death row. Now let's get into the setting. Take
1: us there, Beth. Well, this subject was born in South Korea. Korea is a 750 mile long peninsula located at the easternmost part of the Asian continent. South Korea is located on the, you won't believe this, southern portion of the peninsula.
2: Get out of here.
1: (laughs) And it borders the East Sea or Sea of Japan and the Yellow Sea.
2: The official name of South Korea is the Republic of Korea, but I want to say it right. I think it's Korea. But if I'm pronouncing it wrong, I apologize. And this is because its government claims to be in charge of the whole of Korea and does not recognize North Korea as separate. The government is headed by a president who is elected to a five-year term.
1: The history of the Korean nation began in Manchuria and the Korean Peninsula when people started settling there something like 700,000 years ago.
2: Oh, wow. No, they got yeah. nothing on,
1: on us. Our little stupid <laughs> yeah. asses
2: over here. <laughs> just...
1: So obviously, we aren't going to be able to get into everything. And this is just going to be a very, very brief and
2: truncated history. All right, here goes. So Korea's first kingdom was Old Chosun, which ruled the northwest and parts of China for more than 22 centuries. Then in 108 BCE, it was overthrown by Chinese armies and three new kingdoms emerged. Koguryo, Pixi, and Silla. In the 660s CE, the Silla, with the help of the Chinese troops, won control of the country.
1: But by 901 CE, Korea had once again broken into three kingdoms. In 936, a powerful noble named Wang Khan unified the country under the name Koryo, This kingdom lasted until 1392, when the Yi family seized the throne and began the Chosun dynasty. Chosun, officially the Great Chosun, was the last dynastic kingdom of Korea, lasting just over 500 years.
2: After surviving invasions by Japan at the end of the 16th century and the Manchus of East Asia in the early 17th century, Chosun chose, hey! Chosun chose uh, to limit its contact with the outside world. A 250 year long period of peace followed. That's really interesting. Yeah. With few Koreans traveling outside their isolated country.
1: With the onset of the Industrial Revolution in the 18th century, capitalism developed in Europe and large businesses came into being, which kind of blew my mind a little bit. I didn't really think about it that way. Uh huh. That. There weren't these huge businesses before the Industrial Revolution.
2: Yeah. I guess I hadn't thought of that before either, but my mind I
1: mean before that it was like feudalism and stuff, you know? Yeah. It just kind of blew my mind a little bit. Yeah. 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 Interesting indeed. European countries began expanding their colonies into Asia and Africa. By the mid nineteenth century, the Western powers had forced the Qing dynasty of China and Japan to open their doors to trade and then ask the same of Chosun. But Chosun rejected their
2: requests. In 1875, Japan said, hey, you know what they're doing over there in Europe to everybody else and in the United States? Yeah, I'm on that shit now. And they (laughs) sent a small battleship to attack two Korean islands, demanding that Chosun open its doors to foreign trade. In 1876, under military threat, Chosun was forced to sign the highly unequal, one-sided Korean-Japanese treaty with Japan.
1: Subsequently, imperialist powers, including Japan, vied with each other to pillage Chosun's resources. In 1897, Chosun changed its name to the Korean Empire and pushed ahead with reforms and an open-door policy. But it was too
2: late. Japan soon won major victories in its wars against the Qing Dynasty and Russia, merging as a strong power in Northeast Asia. It took steps to annex Korea, and in August 1910, the Korean Empire was formally annexed by the Empire of Japan.
1: Korea was then under Japanese colonial rule for 48 years. During this colonial period, the Korean people suffered brutal repression at the hands of the Japanese, who tried to wipe out its distinctive language and cultural identity and make Koreans culturally Japanese. The
2: Japanese pillaged Korea's resources, banned the use of the Korean language, and even went so far as to require Koreans to change their personal names to Japanese names under the quote-unquote name order. Yikes. During World War II,
1: many Korean men were compelled to serve in Japan's army or work in wartime factories, while thousands of Korean women were forced into providing sexual services for Japanese soldiers. And they became known as Comfort Women. That's Mm. sick.
2: Yeah. A lot of this, it's, I mean, it's a colonialist, imperialist playbook. Right. Yeah. And you hate to see it, really. Yeah. So when Japan lost in World War II, its territories, including Korea, were taken over by the Allies. And Korea was divided in half at the 38th parallel. Soviet troops occupied the North, while U.S. troops occupied the South. In the
1: aftermath of World War II, political and economic chaos plagued the country. The U.S. military, largely unprepared for the challenge of administering the country, arrived with little knowledge of the language, culture, or political situation. We're just dumbasses over there.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> what, what did you guys think was going to happen?
1: <laughs> Many of their policies had unintended, neg destabilizing effects.
2: <laughs> And for any new listeners, Nege is a Garifuna word that basically means bullshit or supposedly. And now yeah, the I unintended pre- part. Yeah. yeah, exactly. What did you guys think was going to happen? I mean, that's I can't think of another way to describe it. But going into like a college calculus class and you haven't read one book or bought one book or even know how to spell the word calculus, but you're going to go in there and ace every test. Yeah. Or run the class. Run. the! I'm going to be the teacher of this damn calculus class. Yeah, thank you. Uh, So on June 25th, 1950, North Korean troops armed with Soviet-made tanks and fighters invaded the South, triggering the Korean War. The U.S. led a 16-member coalition under the United Nations command to fight off the North. The People's Republic of China joined the war on behalf of North Korea in 1951.
1: The North Koreans inflicted heavy civilian casualties and wrought immense destruction on South Korea. The war raged on until 1953, and more than 2.5 million people died. Mm -hmm. Armistice negotiations initiated in July of 1951 finally concluded on July 27th, 1953, but the Koreas remained divided.
2: Seems like there could have been so many other options, options than, than this before yeah. the ultimate death of two and a half million people. Yeah. Most of South Korea's industrial facilities were destroyed in the Korean War and South Korea became one of the poorest countries in the world. At the time, South Korea had an underdeveloped agrarian economy that depended heavily on foreign aid.
1: The country also experienced political turmoil as alternating periods of democratic and autocratic rule followed. But by the 1970s, South Korea was experiencing dramatic economic growth. And by the 1980s, there was an increasing shift towards high tech and the computer industry. South Korean society also saw a rapid transformation after the Korean War.
2: The population more than doubled between the end of the war and the turn of the 21st century and modern education developed rapidly. South Korea was transformed from an agrarian society into an industrial powerhouse with a highly skilled labor force.
1: Increasing numbers of people living in rural areas migrated to urban areas. Rural to urban migration broke traditional family living arrangements, as urban dwellers tended to live in apartments as nuclear families, and they had fewer children.
2: South Korea is a crowded country with 1,294 citizens for every square mile of land. Wow. Wow. I wonder where that compares to New York. Koreans' lives, just to give people an idea, right? So Koreans' lives are heavily influenced by Confucianism, a Chinese philosophy that emphasizes respect and morality. Although its prominence as the
1: dominant ideology has faded, There are a lot of Confucian ideas and practices that still saturate South Korean culture and daily life, shaping the moral system, social relations, culture, and it is the basis for much of the legal system.
2: Respect and morality sound all right with me. (laughs) I mean, it's
1: like the golden rule, said a little bit differently. Am I wrong? I don't know. I really don't know a lot about Confucianism.
2: Oh, well, me either. I did take (laughs) a class, though, a long time ago. Anyway, Confucianism is highly patriarchal and emphasizes the importance of the family and the group over the individual. Children are taught to think of the needs of the family or society over the needs of individuals. Whoa, that is so opposite from the United States. From the U.S., yeah. Whoa. This extends to business as well, where employees are expected to regard the workplace as a family with the head of the company as the patriarch.
1: There have been periods of cordial relations with North Korea and talk of reunification but tensions between South Korea and the North still remain high.
2: Now let's move over to Mesa, Arizona. Mesa <laughs> is a suburb of Phoenix. Come visit us. Much like LA, <laughs> the suburban sprawl in the Phoenix area makes it difficult to determine where the borders of each of the suburbs are. No, it doesn't. The street signs are different. The streetlights <laughs> are different. Anyway, as they all kind of run into each other, but Mesa is on the east side of the valley. And Phoenix is central. There is a large Asian community in West
1: Mesa that is growing fast. A few years ago, the city of Mesa dubbed a stretch of road on Dobson Road from Main Street to Broadway, the Asian district. Mm. There are up to 100 Asian-owned restaurants, grocery stores, and other service and retail businesses in the area. And even more businesses have popped up outside of those boundaries.
2: I think that's so rad.
1: It is really cool. I go there a lot, actually to the grocery stores and the restaurants. Yeah.
2: It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I love when you can kind of get a little taste of some different culture or different experience or different kind of people. Not too far. Uh, It's so much fun going into
1: the grocery stores Yeah, because like the vegetables and the fruits are different and you can find so many different kinds of tea and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Tell
2: me about it. I love it. But as an aside, At the same time as this guy was active in the Phoenix area, so were Mark Goudot, a.k.a. the Baseline Killer, which was technically our first episode, but we recorded it. So now it's episode 94. And then the Phoenix serial shooters, which are two white dudes, and we we did not do an episode. (laughs) Yeah,
1: but it's interesting that all of this was happening at the same time.
2: Yeah. You invoked the name of Los Angeles earlier when describing the city sprawl. Uh Uh-huh. Right. And it is interesting that in a city like Phoenix, Which is one of the largest capitals in the United States, that there were, you know, a handful of really bad people doing really bad things like there were in the the 70s and 80s in L.A. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, now let's get into Trent Christopher Benson's early life. Okay. Well, he was uh, born on October 7th in 1971 in South Korea, but was abandoned by his birth parents. Much of Trent's early childhood is unknown, but there are strong indications of neglect, abuse, homelessness malnutrition, and poor prenatal care. And he was found wandering the streets before being placed in an orphanage.
1: Trent was three years old when he was adopted by David and Elizabeth Benson, a prominent and well-liked American couple from Foston, Minnesota. He grew up in Foston, a small, mostly white rural town where he had at least two siblings, a brother and a sister.
2: So, just a little culture corner with Wendy and Beth on transracial adoption trauma. So, according to Liberation and Healing in Seattle, adoption is trauma. It's traumatic. If you think about it, an individual severing ties with one family or even
1: an orphanage.
2: Yeah, or reintegrate into something completely new and foreign to right, them. Right. So, on top of all of the adoption itself, transracial adoptees struggle with racial isolation racial identity you know then they don't want to upset their new parents but they're still grieving the loss of their maybe their old home or their old community they struggle with internalized oppression and while adoption can and often is a really wonderful thing adoptive parents should do their best to support their child acknowledge racism acknowledge differences and generally like be curious and listen to this young individual whose background is different than yours yeah. So, good advice. Thanks. I'm going to be the president of everything now. Uh-
0: <laughs> <laughs> My name is Bill Huffman and Slow Burn Media production. Subscribe today,
3: wherever you get your favorite shows. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.
1: So Trent Christopher Benson attended Foston High School, where he ran track, captain the swim team and sang in the choir, graduating in 1990. Nice. Trent then attended Minnesota State University-Moorhead from fall 1990 to spring 1992.
2: On December 18, 1990, he was arrested for shoplifting at a Macy's in the West Acres Shopping Center in Fargo. He later transferred to Normandale Community College in Bloomington, Minnesota, but apparently left there after a year without a degree.
1: He then worked as a car salesman and was known as polite and soft-spoken. But he also kept his private life to himself. He moved to Mesa, Arizona in the mid-90s, where he married Michelle tahoni a Native American woman from the Navajo Nation, and the couple had one son.
2: But Benson had a secret life. He often spent evenings at strip clubs and solicited sex workers. In 1997, Benson was caught in a customer apprehension program when he drove up to the Copa Motel on East Van Buren Street in Phoenix and offered a female police officer working as a decoy $40 for sex, a transaction that was caught on tape. Van Vuren Street is a well-known area in Phoenix for sex work. Main
1: Street in Mesa is also known for sex work. And in March of 2001, a police officer observed Benson picking up a known sex worker on Main Street near School Road. The officer followed Benson's car to a nearby church parking lot. Oh, my God. Don't do Whoa. that. <laughs> Whoa. (laughs) And caught them in the act, a church parking lot.
2: (laughs) Well, they do tend to be vacant at nighttime. That's true. That's true. (laughs) Only really busy on Sundays. Yeah. Anyway, there is no court record associated with the first arrest. But in May of 2001, Benson pleaded guilty to public sexual indecency and loitering. He was sentenced to 10 days in jail, fined $555 and put on probation for three years. In October of 2000, his parents
1: bought a condominium located in Northwood Park in Mesa, a complex located at Brown Road and Country Club Drive. Benson lived there and worked for a used car dealership before acquiring, with his parents' help, a business called Lindsay Water and Ice.
2: And I don't know if they have them elsewhere in the country, but water and ice stores that sell filtered water and ice, but also candy, ice cream, shaved ice, and other treats are all over the Phoenix area. And I think it's because Phoenix water is undrinkable. Um, (laughs) Seriously, it smells like doo-doo. And you can't drink it unless you douse it in Splenda, Crystal Light, and some sort of hard liquor to make you forget the (laughs) tape. And so when we first moved there, we were like shocked That you could be so hot that you can't drink tap water and enjoy (laughs) it. So we used to get, this is kind of a tangent, but we would get 35 gallon jugs of water and fill them up. And we would do that once a month. Like we would take them ourselves to water and ice, fill them up ourselves, get ice cream, then cart them all back in our car, back to our house. It was quite the task. But anyway, (laughs) water and ice stores are like the southwestern version of a bodega.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Benson and Michelle eventually divorced. And in 2004, Benson took out a protection order against Michelle, alleging that she was an alcoholic and an unfit parent. Mm. He wrote that he was worried she would take their son to the Navajo Nation where she was from. Hmm.
2: The court ordered Michelle to not have face-to-face contact with the boy unless supervised and approved by Benson. She was also ordered not to go to Benson's home or business.
1: Benson then had sole custody of his son. He lived at the condo with his brother and was known as a model parent and a quote-unquote pillar of the community. His neighbors described him as the dad of the neighborhood. Oh
2: my gosh. Who
1: supervised children as they played outside. He helped neighbors with their cars and took part in meetings of the, your favorite thing, Homeowners Association.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, of course he did. It's literally, I mean, he doesn't look like a big, scary monster, but right. it turns out that those are the ones you have to be worried about. The ones the who people look people in the Homeowners really look like. Yeah, exactly. Watch out for your homeowner's. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, some of, some of them started. really like
1: the power.
2: Oh. You know, it's
1: really weird about to that. Me. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yes, yeah, weird to me too. So, Michelle was embroiled in legal problems in 2003 and 2004. In 2003, she was arrested for the second time in six years for DUI. In a letter to a judge in Maricopa County Superior Court, Trent shouldered much of the blame for Michelle's legal and drinking problems and begged the court to be lenient because he and their son needed her in their lives. She later said that Trent never hurt her physically. Emotionally, yes, but physically, no. And so now we're going to get into the timeline. Take us there, Beth.
1: On November 1st, 2004, Benson left a strip club and picked up Alyssa Marie Beck, who was 21 at the time. Alyssa had no known job or address, and she'd been in the Phoenix area for a little more than a year.
2: A native of Pennsylvania, Alyssa left her son behind when she moved to the Valley for a fresh start. She was described by friends and family as a funny, outgoing girl who loved adventure, poetry, and drawing, and she dreamed of going to school to become an artist.
1: Benson agreed to pay Alyssa for sex, and she got into his car. By his own account, he snapped when Alyssa complained about how long he was taking. He hit her head on the steering wheel, strangled her to death with a ligature, and then severely sexually assaulted her while she was dead or unconscious.
2: That is uh, just like it's just so sudden. Right. Yeah. I mean, he snapped. But I wanted to because the source that I referred to didn't describe it in this way. It said that she not that she complained about how long it was taking, but complained about his performance. And it led me to think about. A little culture corner that I wanted to share, which I don't think I have in a while about the emasculation and desexualization of Asian men in American culture. And I found an article by Andrew Kung, and it's linked in the show notes. Okay, But there's a myth that Asian men aren't sexy or are inept sexually. And you know, this young guy described growing up and how he wasn't seen as desirable by his American peers, but as a kid, he never saw men dating outside of their race or especially dating white women. Non-Asian women felt inaccessible, fueling a pre-existing feeling of invisibility. And there's microaggressions involved in that, lack of representation involved in that. But ultimately, stereotypes painting Asian men as passive, emasculated boys, lacking sex appeal and a voice. And he goes on to say that Asian men, however, have never fit this mold, unlike Asian American women who have been fetishized lots over time. yeah. But men are desexualized ever since the first Chinese communities immigrated to the United States as a way of minimizing the threat posed by Chinese men who were often portrayed as stealing white American jobs and women. And Asians were characterized as passive, effeminate, and weak. Yeah. And so there's a reason for all of that that is related to white supremacy. So I just wanted to point that out.
1: Yeah, I think part of it also is Americans' misunderstanding of Asian culture. Yeah. And, you know, their emphasis on the whole rather than the individual.
2: Yeah, yeah. I could not agree with you more. I'm glad you said that. Yeah. Because I think that you're right.
1: Yeah. And I think that's kind of, you know... What's the word I'm looking for?
2: Well, let me just pull your head open yeah. and Would you? Uh, look inside there Would and see if I can find, find it.
1: Hmm. Um, help me find a word.
2: Well, what were the two words mentioned in the beginning? Uh, respect and morality. Yeah. And when capitalism is king, <laughs> which is an American value, capitalism, money over all else, the individual, and the individual over all over else, every,
1: yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: Then there isn't really room for respect and morality you know all those billionaires that we have in our country elon musk (laughs) included you don't become a billionaire by being respectful and moral so yeah it just it makes it makes sense to me yeah let us know fruity's what y'all think yeah so benson then left
1: Alyssa's partially clad body in an alley in mesa near mccallops road and country club drive less than a mile from his home A family of seven found her the next day, and it was one day before her 22nd birthday. Yeah, she was naked from the waist down, face up and on the gravel.
2: On August 16th, 2007, a 47-year-old Latinx woman named Yolanda was walking home near Horn and Main Street in Mesa. As she was walking, a white sedan pulled up alongside her. A man got out and attempted to pull her inside of the car. Initial reports said there were two men involved.
1: Yolanda struggled with the man, but was ultimately pulled into the car and rendered unconscious. She was then brought to an unknown location. And when Yolanda regained consciousness, a man was sexually assaulting her in a room.
2: She reported to police that as she was being raped, a second man was filming the act. She also said that she could see herself on large format TV as she was being raped. That's horrifying. Yeah. I mean, she comes to and then all Cease, of this, is all of this yeah. horrifying afterwards, left alone and naked. Yolanda was able to escape and flee on foot.
1: She hailed a taxi as she dressed herself and was driven to her home where she called police. She could not identify the perpetrator's race, but described him as between 25 and 35 years old, about five feet, eight inches tall, with short, dark hair. The second man was never identified. And some of the details the woman gave about her attacker did not match Benson.
2: On October 14, 2007, Benson picked up 44-year-old Karen Jane Campbell near Main Street and Extension Road in Mesa. Karen had no permanent address, but she roamed the area of Main Street between Dobson Road and Country Club Drive on foot and on her bicycle. According to her
1: ex-husband, Michael Rowley, Karen had a mental illness and didn't like the medication prescribed to her because it gave her a constant low-grade headache. She eventually turned to meth.
2: Michael said that when Karen was clean, she was a great mother and stepmother and a quote-unquote top-notch person who taught Sunday school at her church. He commented that it's just amazing what one type of drug can do to a person.
1: Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. But why do people turn to drugs?
2: It's the other yeah,
1: thing. Right, true. Karen started having run-ins with the law after the couple divorced. She left the state after a 1998 drug conviction and then returned in 2004 to attempt to regain custody of her children.
2: Benson brought Karen to his house after she agreed to engage in sex for money, but he became enraged when she asked for more money. He hit Karen and then strangled her with a ligature. He also sexually assaulted Karen while she was unconscious. Whoop. He later told police that he blacked out and awoke to find her dead on his floor. Hmm.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Benson dumped her body on the 2700 block of East Leonora Street in a neighborhood near Lindsay and McKellops Roads. As he was leaving, he ran over her body with his car.
2: Oh, no. Oh, yeah. my God.
1: What? He later claimed it was by accident. Hmm. Her nude body was found by a newspaper carrier. Police were unable to determine how exactly she'd been
2: killed, probably
1: because he'd run her over.
2: Mm -hmm. On November 1st, 2008, 32-year-old Elisa or Elise, Leah Duwakaku, was found dead in an irrigation canal. It was determined that she had been strangled to death and her body was found exactly a mile from where Karen Campbell had been found.
1: Her body was covered with scrapes and bruises and included a boot or a shoe print. Mm. Initially, police said that forensic evidence linked her to the death of Elisa Beck. However, they later said there was no DNA evidence to link her to any of the attacks. Hmm. And Benson was never charged in her murder.
2: On November 4th, 2008, at about 1 a.m., a 35-year-old woman named Melissa was abducted from behind a business near 7th Street and Osborne Road in Phoenix. As she was walking across a lot, she was attacked from behind and choked with a cord. Ooh, now he's preparing by grabbing tools and stuff like that. What a piece of basura! So she (laughs) saw a white car before she fell unconscious. While Melissa was unconscious, Benson
1: severely sexually assaulted and hit her. When Melissa regained consciousness, she was lying on the side of the road. She was found by a passerby.
2: Mesa police were able to link DNA to three incidents, the murders of Karen Campbell and Alisa Beck, and to one of the assaults. They believed that a serial predator was at work. In December of 2007, they asked the FBI for help. So now let's get into the investigation and the arrest.
1: Hit it, Beth. In the spring of 2008, a woman told Mesa police that an Asian man in a white car had repeatedly attempted to solicit her. She said the man frequented a local bar and the police began watching him.
2: That man was... Who was it? Who was it? Benson. (laughs) In May of 2008, he stood outside of his place of business smoking a cigarette. When he had finished, he dropped the butt to the ground and went inside. Police retrieved the cigarette butt and investigators expedited the forensics analysis to get a DNA profile from it. Love it when DNA comes through. And the DNA linked Benson to the
1: murders of Elisa Marie Beck and Karen Jane Campbell, as well as the rapes of Yolanda and Melissa. Benson was arrested on May 14, 2008, and charged with 10 counts of first-degree murder, kidnapping, and sexual assault. He was 38.
2: At first, Benson told police that he had had sex with the two women who turned up dead, but he denied killing them. He later confessed to killing Elisa and Karen and then to assaulting Melissa, but he denied assaulting Yolanda like like, just admitting to a little bit at a time, yeah, like, mm, yeah. you know, I'm, I might have did this thing, but Not I didn't do that, that one other one, yeah. yeah. Uh, he explained the presence of his DNA on her body by stating he had solicited a Hispanic chick around that time who must have been Yolanda. Oh, he claimed that the sex was consensual and that he had paid her for it. Okay, okay. Okay. Well, how did we get here then? Yeah. Trans? <laughs>
1: Benson's defense attorney later said it made no sense that he would confess to the more serious crimes of murder and another sexual assault case, but not to the assault of Yolanda, which does make sense. But prosecutors alleged that he was covering for an accomplice. And I'll say that I don't know if, you know, what went on with Yolanda, because her story was so different from all the other stories. There were two men... Yeah, and a TV videotape and mm-hmm. videotaping. It was very different. So, yeah. I mean, it's possible he did not assault Yolanda. And he did, you know, maybe he did solicit her for sex and paid for it. I don't know. But again, he could have been covering for somebody else who helped him in that crime. I don't know. It's weird.
2: Oh, it's really weird. I thought it was a stretch on the prosecutor's part. But now that the OG has laid it all out for me. My, 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 it does make some sense. Thank you. (laughs) So news of his arrest stunned friends and former classmates and others in Foston. Cindy Hoylman, a former Foston resident, said that as she struggled to grasp the ugly accusations against Benson, quote, his family is such a nice family. He came from a nice home and was such a nice man growing up. So what happened? It's so confusing for his friends, his community, unquote. I bet it was confusing. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, when you grow up with somebody and and you think of them one way as being this nice kid who did well in school, and then you find out that he's a serial killer? Yeah.
2: Yeah. That would be confusing. I guess so. But I'm just thinking me. Black-ass Wendy. (laughs) who's familiar with predominantly white spaces full of white people and how they never see the little things. And he came from a nice family, but was he okay the whole time? Right. I don't know if he would have been. And I would have pulled him aside and maybe asked, hey, are, are, you they, you okay? are, yeah. are they treating you right over there?
1: <laughs> yeah. And he was described as quiet and, you know, he may have been just bottling everything up inside.
2: Yeah. 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 So anyway, that's just, see, we come from two different, two different worlds. worlds. That's why this is yeah. so important for yeah, us to it talk is.
1: about. Yeah, it is. And that's why uh, we do this podcast.
2: <laughs> Amen. Praise the Lord. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise. <laughs> Somebody send me a sound effect for a praise break because that would be a perfect time. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Thanks. Do you know what a praise break is, friend? Nope, but I'll find out when you get one. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. All right.
1: So, one anonymous contributor to an online crime blog said that he lived on the same Moorhead dorm floor as Benson in 1990, and he recalled problems. Quote Trent feverishly pursued a couple of girls to the point it was unnerving. Once one got to know him, it was apparent he had a dark and sinister side to him. "Sorry, but this the arrest doesn't surprise me at all." Mm,
2: "Interesting. His ex-wife Michelle Tahoni said, quote, "As far as I'm concerned, he never hurt me. Emotionally, yes, but he never hurt me physically. I mean, I don't know if he's capable of that. That's just a whole different person." Unquote. And now let's talk about the trial. What the what, Beth? The state indicted
1: Benson on two counts of first-degree murder, four counts of kidnapping, and four counts of sexual assault. Benson pleaded not guilty. The jury found him guilty on all charges except the sexual assault count concerning Karen, on which it returned a verdict for attempted sexual assault.
2: During the penalty phase, the jury found three aggravating factors that qualified him for the death penalty. He had been convicted of crimes that could be punished by life or death sentences, namely the multiple murders. He was convicted of other serious crimes, namely kidnapping and sexual assault. And the murders were committed in an especially heinous, cruel or depraved
1: manner. The defense offered several mitigating factors relating to his difficult early childhood, lack of a criminal record and good relationships with family, friends, and the community, and evidence of PTSD. But absent evidence as to how the PTSD related to his mental state at the time of the murders, and the concession by defense experts that he did know right from wrong, the jury may have given the mitigation little weight.
2: Sounds like it. The jury determined that Benson should be sentenced to death for each murder. The trial court imposed death sentences for the murders and consecutive sentencing totaling 135 and a
1: half years. Oh, got to add that half on. You gotta.
2: (laughs) You gotta. uh, (laughs) Imprisonment for the other counts. Interesting. Yeah, it's just... You're going to jail for infinity years. What? Yeah. You're, Why did you die. give me a number? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> you're going to die twice <laughs> Yeah. because he oh. got two death sentences. <laughs> yeah. How? Um, so now we're going to get into where are they now? Tell us, Beth. Benson is still alive and
1: is currently being housed in the Arizona State Prison Complex Iman Riding Unit, which is located in Florence, Arizona.
2: You know what? It sounded when you said "I'm in," like I'm in, like oh, you're I'm there. In. That's what I'm I thought. In, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was like, "What? I'm no, in? You're not. Okay. i man. <laughs> i man. All right. Or amen?
1: Maybe amen. I don't know. Okay. Uh, yeah. okay. Some prison in Florence, Arizona. In Florence, Arizona. Okay.
2: <laughs> so now we're gonna get into what made him snap, as well as our takeaways. What are your thoughts on this case, Beth?
1: Well, I found it interesting. I never even heard of this guy before yeah. we started researching this case, mm-hmm. which is weird because I, I have heard of Mark Grudeau and I remember the baseline you saying? killer. Right. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. the Phoenix shooters, which was all happening at the same time. But, right. uh, but this guy was right in my neighborhood. I live in Mesa and yeah. I never heard of him.
2: <laughs> yeah. It's weird. Yeah. Yeah, it is. But yeah. I thought part of it was the timing. Because there's three really terrible people roaming the Phoenix metro area, but at the time, and I just I wanted to say this before you before you go on, so it's okay. not a moot point later, right? That this was a time of economic recession, right? People were losing jobs or unable to find jobs. People were being foreclosed upon. People were just like struggling at the time, and yeah. I think that part of I think people may have been aware of crime at the time, but everybody I think everybody was just trying to to do their best. Cause at the time yeah. this was also like Enron got popped. Big companies were also committing like big cri- there was there just was so much crime. News. I think yeah, it yeah. might have been too much. Maybe that's yeah. why you didn't know about it. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know, but I
1: was like hyper aware of the baseline killer and this Phoenix oh, shooter. Yeah, yeah. All right, I take all of that back. I don't know. Penny, cut this
2: out. (laughs) No, you don't need to cut it out. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I don't don't really know. But in any case, so as far as what made him snap, um, obviously his unknown early life had to have affected him on a deep level. Mm -hmm. By all accounts, his adoptive parents were great, but the severe neglect and possible abuse that he suffered as a baby he was mm-hmm. a baby. Yeah. And that's really like your formative yeah. years, you know?
2: Yeah. And just because you don't remember something traumatic happening when doesn't you were a mean baby it one, two, or three. You. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And
1: it sounds like there were two versions of this guy. The polite and neighborly guy. The polite and neighborly parent with mm-hmm. a cruel, darker underside. Mm-hmm. He also grew up in a rural Somewhere around 90% white. It might even be 95% oh, white. Oh, my God. That town. sounds like yeah. a horror movie for a BIPOC yeah, person. Yeah, I know, right? Saying. For a BIPOC person, it's not <laughs> yeah, not it's like not the not movie good. Get Out. Yes, Ooh. exactly. <laughs> uh, and it couldn't have been easy, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like he was doing well when he was younger. Mm-hmm. And then he kind of drifted. He dropped out of school. He was a car salesman. Who wants to be a car salesman, you know? And, well, uh, if you're
2: the car salesman in the Bumblebee Transformers movie, then <laughs> you get to be Bernie Mac and meet Bumblebee.
1: Thank okay, you. Okay. That sounds fun to me. Um, I don't think he was living up to his potential because, you know, mm-hmm. he, he was doing so well and, in high school, I think he, yeah, he could have done better. Yeah. And maybe, maybe he was angry about that. I don't, I don't yeah. know.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Angry. I, I really think there's a lot to his early childhood, early childhood and childhood, then yeah. the trauma of transracial adoption. And I'm not, I'm not an expert on it, but I do know that in my BIPOC support groups, that's a, a lingering cause of suffering to deal with. And I imagine that if his parents were from Minnesota, that they may have been the types to not acknowledge racism or maybe even be those people who say...
1: Colorblind people. Like,
2: yeah, we don't (laughs) see color. We just love him. And that basically just like disregards whatever he might have been experiencing at the time. Right, right. I also, I really think that there might be something to the fact that economically, The United States was a shit show at the time of these murders and crimes. And I also think of the generational trauma that may have, you know, like there was his childhood, but we mentioned poor prenatal care. And I imagine that his family of origin may have been suffering from conflict, poverty, instability, all those things affect your nervous system and ability to like regulate your emotions and um, behavior sometimes. And, you know, they say if you don't deal with your trauma, including your generational trauma, it will deal with you. Yeah. And I just feel like even if there was something going on with him internally, that he had the resources to like talk to somebody like he could have seen a therapist, right, or found somebody to talk to. Yeah. And we didn't see any evidence that his mental health was even a consideration for himself at the time. And you know, right. he he had a son, he had a wife who he recognized her mental illness, right? Right. But not his not, not his, his own. own. Yeah. And maybe that's because he was a man also, that was something that he failed to be able to recognize in himself. But I wanted to say, Beth, thank you for working your magic and finding information about the victims. <laughs> You're I wanna say again, rest in power to them. Ultimately, you know, they were human beings with lives and people who loved them. And we're really just trying to get by. And they yeah. did not deserve what happened to them. No. Nope. Do we have anything to add nope. before next segment? Okay, let's get into how not to get murdered. So, <clears throat> if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences.
2: All right. Well, this series of tips comes from BuzzFeed. Okay. And it's safety tips that it's on Instagram for women who live alone. And I'll link the article in the show notes. But there were 15 tips for women who live alone. So just a few that I found the most interesting were when you're using rideshare apps, use a neighbor's address. Oh, wow. Yeah. I had That's I mean, I idea. wish yeah. I had found that before last week. Yeah. Anyway, uh and if you if you live in an apartment, wait to turn the lights on after being dropped off until oh, the driver right. so you're drives not away so they're where you live. Yeah, which apartment is yours. Right. And also vary up your routine. Don't leave at the same time when you walk or drive. Switch up your route if you can. Okay. Cool. Thank you. There you go. Thank you. All right. Now it's shout out time where we shout out any content by or about any BIPOC folks or LGBTQ folks or anybody marginalized or others um, or any true crime goodies. So I discovered a podcast today called Immigrantly. 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 Yeah. And it's hosted by Sadia Khan. And it's a podcast about boundary pushing and border crossing And they use diverse voices and and stories from all kinds of people. And Sadia says it's a celebration of what makes us unique and reminds us of what unites us. Oh, nice. It's fun, thoughtful and inclusive. The episodes are not too long, just 45 minutes. And I love it. Nice. So what do you got? So I wanted to shout out Billy Porter on the Black Mona
1: Lisa tour. So you saw it? I did. Yeah. And
2: what happened? Did you pee your pants? Did you explode? (laughs)
1: No, I'll get into it. Okay. So first of all, Billy Porter is an actor, singer, writer, and director. And you might recognize him as the fabulous godmother in the 2021 version of Cinderella or as Pray Tell in Pose.
2: Impossible! (laughs) That's that's just my impression. That's your impression? Okay. it's a meme.
1: (laughs) Anyway, I went to see him last Sunday with some friends and it was amazing. It was mm. heartwarming and life affirming. It almost made ah. me cry. Oh, yeah. Wow. I loved it. And it was interesting. The audience was interesting. At least, you know, this was in Arizona. Uh So I don't know what the audience is like elsewhere. But there were all kinds of people. Young people, older people, LGBTQ people. Oh, I love it. Heterosexual people, all kinds of people. And everybody was, it just felt like we were all. Like, I don't know. It, it felt like we were all together,
2: you know? Yeah. I don't know you how mean, else to explain you mean, it. You mean, kind of like the podcast I just described where we were celebrating the things that make you guys unique and reminded of what makes you united. What yes. Makes us. yes. Um, and Billy Porter was the vehicle for making that happen.
1: Yes. Yeah. Oh my it God. was great. It was beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> oh so my if you God. can get tickets, you should definitely go. Got and it. I wanted to also shout out to my friends. I'm not going to say their full names, but J and M for taking me along for the
2: ride. Oh, that's so beautiful. Um, I've met M and thank you for taking me. Yeah. <laughs> um. So that is <laughs> Immigrantly Podcast wherever you get your podcast. And then Billy Porter on the Black Mona Lisa tour, and you can probably just Google where to find tickets for that tour. Oh, for sure, yeah. And uh, uh, something's wrong here with my screen. There's no script anymore. (laughs) There's no other episode left. What? No. Who is (laughs) who is responsible for this? Um, (laughs) 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 All right. Well, that's it for today. In the meantime, Beth, where can the people find us? Our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod
1: for all of our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website, plus check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. You can also support us by supporting our sponsors or by giving us a five-star review.
2: Yeah! Well, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there.
1: On that shit now oh my dog is being a butt hold on oh that's okay good what are you doing good boy okay we'll go out in a minute
2: <laughs> what happened did you pee your pants did you explode <laughs> yeah 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 okay instagram What? whoa <laughs> instagram that man was who was it who was it you're going to jail for infinity
1: years his parents bought a a condominium condominium
2: (laughs) i like that new word (laughs) what a mouthful yeah yeah how um so what's wrong with oh i know my glasses are filthy um (laughs) oops wait i said that already hey chosun chose (laughs) he's doing
1: it again i just need to get through this paragraph sid are you just fronting i'm fronting yeah i knew it
2: (laughs) all right
1: no who is who's responsible
2: for this Um, (laughs) i'm gonna be the president of everything now Uh, (laughs) (laughs) impossible (laughs) that's uh, (laughs) that's just my impression that's your impression okay it's a meme